reading from the first edition of a book called Sin's Overthrow, or a godly and learned treatise of mortification in which is excellently handled first a general doctrine of mortification, and in particularly how to mortify fornication, uncleanness, evil concupiscence, inordinate affection and covetousness, albeit the substance of several sermons upon Colossians 3 verse 5, mortify therefore your members, and so on, delivered by that late faithful preacher and worthy instrument of God's glory, John Preston, doctor and divinity, chaplain and ordinary to his majesty, master of Emmanuel College in Cambridge, 1641. Chapter 1. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, the Doctrine of Mortifications. This chapter contains a number of exhortations to heavenly mindedness, by which the Apostle labors to dissuade the Colossians from corruptible things, to things not corruptible, but everlasting, not earthly, but heavenly, in which the life of a Christian in true holiness stands. In the first verse, he begins with an exhortation to seek heavenly things. If you be risen with Christ, Seek those things that are above. That is, if you be risen with Christ and dead to the fashions of men, then there is an alteration and change in your souls, by which you are brought to affect that which is heavenly, and basely to esteem of earthly things. Therefore, if you are risen, that is, if this heavenly life and disposition and change be in you, then let the same appear by your heavenly mindedness, that is, by seeking of heavenly things. In the second verse, he joins another exhortation grounded on the first, to be wise and to understand them. Set your affections on things above. That is, let them be specially minded of you. Let all your faculties be filled with the knowledge of spiritual things. And this is so joined with the former that there can be no seeking without knowing. For how could a man seek that which he does not know? And if you have no knowledge of heaven and heavenly things, how can you desire them? Seeing where there is no desire, there is no seeking. And therefore, if you would seek heavenly things as Christ, in grace, in salvation, then know them first. Afterwards, in the third verse, he goes on and presses this exhortation with a number of arguments. First, because you were dead. That is, seeing you were dead to earthly things, therefore strive not now to be earthly minded. Secondly, your life is hid with Christ. That is, your happiness is not seen with the eye of the body by looking on these earthly things. But your happiness and joy is by faith beholding Christ. Therefore, set your heart and eye on him where your life is. That is, you look for a perfection of glory with Christ, which you cannot have by minding earthly things. Therefore, be heavenly minded. In the fourth verse, the apostle answers a demand, for they might thus object. You tell us that we shall have a perfection of glory, and that it is hid with Christ. But when shall we have it? That is, when shall it be made manifest to us? To this the apostle answers, When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall we also appear with him in glory. And upon this he grounds another exhortation in the verse I have read, as if he should say, Seeing you expect such a perfection of glory to be revealed to you at Christ's second coming, then it stands you upon to set upon your corruptions, to kill, 
and to slay them that seek to deprive you of that glory. Mortify therefore your earthly members, that is, slay every soul affection, inordinate desire of earthly things. Rid your hearts of them by slaying of them, and although it may seem hard work, yet fight still, or else you shall never attain to that life you hope for. So that the first general point hence is this, that the height of glory which we expect by Christ should cause every man to mortify sin. See, Apostle makes a ground of our mortification. If you be risen with Christ, seek the things that are above. Mortify, therefore, your earthly members, that is, except you slay sin, that is slain Christ. You cannot get life with Christ. Surely then mortification is not as men think it, a needless work which does not matter much whether we set upon it or not. But this is men's sickness. For, as a man that is sick, thinks medicine is not needful, because he is not sensible of his disease, when as a physician knows that it is a manner of necessity, and that except he purge out that corruption and humor of the body, it will grow incurable. Even so, except this corruption of nature be purged out, it will grow incurable. That is, we cannot be saved. Therefore, we know to mortify sin is a work of necessity, upon which stands every man's life and salvation. The second thing which we notice is that the frame of our hearts ought to suit with those conditions that we receive by our union with Christ. In this also, the apostle makes another ground of mortification. If you be risen with Christ, seek heavenly things, and therefore labor to mortify your inordinate affections and sinful lusts, that so the frame of your hearts and disposition of it may suit with heavenly things. As if he should say, you profess yourselves to be risen with Christ, that is, you are in a more excellent state than you were in by nature, and you expect a perfection of glory, then it must follow that the frame of your heart must suit with your condition, that is, you must be such as you profess yourselves to be, and this cannot be, except you mortify sin, all inordinate affections, all worldly lust, all immoderate care for earthly things, do not think to get grace, salvation, and eternal life, except first you slay your corruptions and lusts, for mortification is the turning of the heart from evils to good, from sin to grace, or it is a work in a new disposition of the heart, turning it quite contrary, or else it may be said to be the slain of that evil disposition of nature in us. Now we must know that howsoever mortification is a deadly wound given to sin in which it is disabled to bear any rule or commanding power in the heart of a regenerate man, yet we say mortification is not perfect. That is, it does not so slay sin that we have no sin at all in us, or that we cease to sin. For in the most regenerate and holiest man that lives, there is still the sap of sin in his heart. A tree may have withered branches by reason of some deadly wound given to the root, and yet there may be remaining some sap in the root, which will in time bring forth other branches. So it is with a regenerate man. There may be a deadly wound being given to sin which may cause inordinate affections to wither, and yet, notwithstanding, some sap of sin may remain, which it needs still to be mortified, lest otherwise it bring forth other branches. Mortification is not for a day only, but it must be a continual work. When you have slain sin today, you must slay it tomorrow. 
For sin is of a quickening nature. It will revive if it be not deadly wounded. And there is seed in every sin which is of a spreading nature and will fructify much. Therefore, when you have given a deadly wound to some special corruption, do not rest there, but then set upon the lesser, mortify the branches of that corruption. And so much the rather, because it will be an easy work to overcome the common soldiers and to put them to flight when the general is slain. We call mortification a turning of the heart. The heart by nature is backward from God. That is, it minds and affects nothing but that which is contrary to God. It is wholly disposed to earthly things. Now, the mortification alters and changes the heart, turning it from earthly to heavenly things, even as a river that has stopped in its usual course is now turned in another way. So mortification stops the passage of sin in the soul, turning the faculties, the stream of the soul, another way. The soul was earthly disposed. The mind, the will, and the affections were wholly carried after earthly things. Now there is a new disposition wrought in the soul. The mind and affections are wholly set upon heavenly things. Before, he was for the world, how he might satisfy his lust. But now his heart is for grace, justification, remission of sins, and reconciliation. Here then, seeing mortification is the slaying of sin, that many deceive themselves in a manner of mortification, who think that sin is mortified when it is not, and contrarywise others think that they have not mortified sin. That is, they have not given a deadly wound to sin because they still feel rebellious lusts in their hearts. Therefore, for the better explaining of this point of mortification, I will propound two questions. The first shall be for the discovering of hypocrites, and the second shall be for the comforting of weak Christians. The first question is whether sin may not seem to be mortified when it is not mortified but only asleep. To this I answer that sin may seem to be mortified when it is not, and that in these particulars first, sin may seem to be mortified when the occasion is removed, as a covetous man may not be so covetous after the world as he was because he is not so good an opportunity, and thereupon he may grow remiss. And yet the sin of covetousness is not mortified. For let there be an occasion or an opportunity offered to him, and you shall find this sin as quick and lively in him as ever it was before. And so for drunkenness or any other vice in this kind, when the occasion is removed, the sin may be removed and yet not mortified. Secondly, sin may be mortified seemingly when it is not violent, but quiet. That is, when an unruly affection does not trouble them. They think that now that sin is mortified, but they are deceived. For it is with sin as with a disease. A man that is sick of a fever, so long as he is asleep, he feels no pain because sleep takes away the sense of it. But when he is awake... Then presently he feels his pain afresh. Even so, when sin awakes him out of sleep, then they shall find it was not mortified, but they were only asleep. Samson, Judges 16. For so long as he was asleep in his sin, he thought all was well, and that his strength was not gone. But when he awakes out of sleep, his sin awakes. And then with much sorrow he finds that his sin was not mortified, especially when it fell into his enemy's hands. Thirdly, sin may seem to be mortified when it is but removed from one sin to another, when it is removed from a last to a greater, 
or from a greater to a less, as for example, a man may not be so covetous as he was, and think with himself that this sin is mortified, when as indeed it is not mortified, but only removed to another. For now it may be he has grown ambitious and seeks after honor, and therefore he does not stand now with his reputation and credit to be covetous. Upon this he may grow bountiful, and nevertheless his sin of covetousness be unmortified, and so for drunkenness and such as desire pleasure, their minds and delights may be changed, and the sin of the soul be not yet mortified. Sin is to the soul as diseases are to the body. Now we know that diseases of the body usually remove from one place to another, or at least grow from a less to a greater. So it is with sin in the soul, it will remove from one faculty to another. Fourthly, sin may seem to be mortified when the conscience is frightened with the judgments of God either present upon him or threatened against him. Now, by the power of restraining grace, a man may be kept from sin. That is, he may so bridle his affections that he may keep sin from the action. He may forsake drunkenness, covetousness, pride, and the like, and yet a sin be not mortified. For here is a difference between a man that has his sin mortified and one that does not. The first is always careful that his sin come not to action. He is careful and watchful over his ways and heart, as well as when the judgment is removed, as when he feels it. But the other hinders not sin longer than the hand of God is upon him. Remove that, and then his care is removed. Fifthly, sin may seem to be removed and mortified when the sap and strength of sin is dead. That is, when the strength of nature is spent and the lamp goes out, when oil is either not supplied or taken away, and yet the lamp is still a lamp. For let oil be supplied to it or fire put into it, and it will burn. So there may not be the action, and yet sin is not mortified in the heart. For he is as well affected to sin as ever he was, only the sap and strength of nature is gone. But if oil were supplied, that is, if strength and nature would but return, sin would be as alive and vigorous as ever it was. Sixthly, good education. When a man is brought up under good parents or masters, he may so be kept under that sin may seem to be mortified, but let those be once at their own ruling, then it will appear that sin is not mortified in them, that is, that they have not lost their swinish disposition, only they are kept from fouling of themselves. As a swine or pig, so long as she is kept in a fair meadow, cannot foul herself, but if you give her liberty to go where she lists, she will presently be wallowing in the mud. Even so, these are ashamed to defile themselves while they are under good education, but opportunity being offered, it will soon appear. Sin is not mortified. Now, moving forward in this book, How to Mortify Fornication. By the way, this book has been narrated before. This is just a more improved quality, and therefore, if you check the narrated Puritan under John Preston, you will find other narrations of this book, How to Mortify Fornication. Having handled in general the doctrine of mortification according to the method of the apostle, I am now come to descend to the considering of particulars as they are laid down in my text, and would speak of them in the orders they are ranked by the Holy Spirit. But as the affinity and innerness between three of these sins, namely fornication, uncleanness, and evil concupiscence, makes me to confound them and promiscuous to mingle them together, 
Let us therefore consider first of the nature of every of these sins particularly by themselves, and afterward make use and application to ourselves of them altogether. The doctrine that arises in general from these words is that all uncleanness is a thing God would have mortified and quite destroyed out of the hearts that he would dwell in. All filthiness and uncleanness is a member of the old man. Now in such as Christ dwells, and the old man is crucified. He is dead with Christ, now that he is dead with him, is freed from him, and, again, he that is in the second Adam has power to mortify the members of the old man. All God's children must be purified and cleansed from all pollution, as the apostle expressly commands us in Ephesians 5 verse 1. Be you followers of God as dear children, that is, be like to God your father as children resemble their natural fathers. Now God is pure and holy, therefore must you be so also. And then it follows in verse 3, But fornication, and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become saints. That is, let all such filthiness be so far from you as never it's not even to be named among you. Not even mentioned. If it should by chance enter into your thoughts, be sure to kill it there. Let it come no further, never to the naming of it. As it becomes saints, that is, holy one, God's children, a peculiar people, it were unbecoming and a great shame to them to be unclean, to be unlike God their Father who is holy. In like manner, he exhorts us to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, Second Corinthians 7 verse 1. That is, let us purify our hearts from the corruption of lust and concupiscence which is therein, striving to make perfect our holiness and the fear of the Lord. And so more fully also in First Thessalonians 4, verse 3, 4, and 5, he sets down the particular uncleanness should be abstained from, and mentions two of the very same spoken of in my text, namely, fornication and lust of concupiscence. The words are, for they are worthy of your marking, just as the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the loss of concupiscence and so on. And therefore we ought to mortify and destroy all the filthiness that is in our hearts, if we would be accounted God's children and have a spirit to dwell in us but that for the general we come to particulars. And we'll speak of the first sin that is named in the text, fornication, which the point of doctrine is that fornication is one of the sins that are to be mortified. Fornication is a sin between two single persons and that it differs from adultery. And although it be not altogether so heinous as adultery, because by it the covenant of God is not violated, is by the other spoken of, Proverbs 2 verse 17, Neither find we the punishment absolutely to be death, yet it is a grievous sin, and to be feared, and that it subjects those men that are guilty of it to the curse of God and damnation. For the apostle saith, in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9, No fornicator shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. It deprives a man of happiness, banishes him out of God's kingdom into the dominion of the devil, and territories of hell never to be exempted from the intolerable torments of God's eternal vengeance. But to lay open the heinousness of the sin, we will consider these four things. First, the sinfulness of it. Secondly, the punishment of it. 
Thirdly, the danger of it. Fourthly, the deceitfulness of it. First, the sinfulness of the sin of fornication appears first in great contrariety that it has between God's spirit, more than all other sins, between God's spirit and every sin. There is a certain contrariety and repugnancy. As in nature we know there is between heat and cold, now in all contraries an intense degree is more repugnant than a remiss, as an intense heat is more contrary to a heat in a less degree. So it is with God's spirit. In this sin, they are contrary in an intense degree, and therefore most repugnant too. For the spirit delights in holiness, and this sin is nothing but filthiness that is pure and undefiled. But this has a great deformity in it, and therefore consequently must needs be odious in his eyes. Besides, this is contrary to our calling, as the Apostle says in First Thessalonians 4, verse 7. For God has not called you to uncleanness, but to holiness. Again, it causes a great elongation from God. It makes a strangeness between God and us. All sin is an aversion from God. It turns a man quite away from him, but this sin more than any other. It is more delighted in. We have a greater delight in the acting of this sin than in any other, and therefore it is a most grievous sin. Furthermore, the greatness of the sin appears in that it is commonly a punishment for other sins according to that of the Apostle, Romans 1, 21 and 24, compared together where he says, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and so on. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, to the same purpose as that of the preacher in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 26, where speaking of the enticing woman whose heart is snares and nets, and so on, he says, Whoso pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be taken by her. That is, whosoever commits sin shall in this be punished, that he shall be entrapped and ensnared by the subtle enticements of the dishonest woman. So also in Proverbs 22, verse 14, the mouth of a strange woman is a deep pit. He that is abhorred of the Lord shall fall in it. Now all sin of this kind, and consequently sinners, are abhorred of the Lord, and therefore he will punish them in letting them stumble into this deep pit of strange women here, and hereafter without repentance, and in the bottomless pit of everlasting destruction. As long as the Lord looks for any fruit of any man, he keeps him from this pit, but such as notwithstanding all his watering, pruning, and dressing, will bring forth no fruit with those the Lord is angry, they shall fall into it. Now as in a ladder, or anything that has steps ascending and descending by, that stare unto which another leads must needs be higher than the rest. So in sin, that sin unto which others lead as to punishment must needs be greater and of a higher nature than the other, and therefore this sin is a most grievous sin. Besides, the heinousness of this sin appears because it lays waste to conscience more than any other sin. It breaks a piece of it, nay, it smothers and quenches grace. The schoolmen call other sins a dulling of the senses, but this is an extinction of grace. Other sins blunt grace and takes off the edge, but this does as it were quite extinguish it. It makes a gap in the heart, 
so the good thoughts and emotions of the spirit may run out, and noisome lusts and corrupt cogitations may enter in to possess and dwell there, and therefore it is a grievous sin. Lastly, the greatness of the sin appears because it delights the body more than any other sin does. Therefore, the apostle in 1 Corinthians 6 draws most of his arguments to dissuade the Corinthians from the sin of fornication, from the glory and honor of our bodies. It that the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord. Verse 13. And the bodies are members of Christ. Verse 15. The temples of the Holy Ghost. Verse 19. And bought with the price. Verse 20. And then concludes, therefore, glorify God in your bodies. And so in another place it is said we ought to possess our vessels in honor. Now, there can be no greater means to dishonor the vessels of our body than to pollute them by the filthy sin of fornication. Secondly, the heinousness of the sin will be the better seen if we consider the fearful punishment of it, which because men are more afraid of the evil of punishment than of the evil of sin, is therefore set down to be the greater according to the greatness of the sin itself, as may appear by these two reasons first. God himself takes the punishment of this in his own hand. For so says the apostle in Hebrew 13 verse 4, Whoremongers and adulterers God will judge that God himself will be the judge of all men. For the godly indeed it shall be best, because he is righteous and will render to them a crown. But for the wicked it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Again, God reserves such filthy persons for an heavy judgment according to that of Peter in Second Peter 2, 9 and 10. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust to the day of judgment to be punished, but chiefly them that walk in the loss of uncleanness. And this is manifest in that fearful and grievous judgment he brought upon the children of Israel in the wilderness. When is there fell in one day three and twenty thousand for the committing of this sin? 1 Corinthians 10 verse 8. So God punished Reuben for his sin, and that by it he lost his excellency, Genesis 49. Losing this, he lost three things which belonged to his birthright, as he was the eldest, first, the kingdom, which was given to Judah, secondly, the priesthood, which Levi had, and thirdly, the double portion which his father bestowed upon Joseph. There is Sychem and Ammon also, for their filthiness of this kind were taken away. Suddenly, and how was David punished? Though the dear child of God, the sword shall never depart from his house. See also what grievous judgments the Lord threatens to them that shall commit this sin in Proverbs 5, 8 to 11. Remove your way far from her, meaning the strange woman or harlot, and come not near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the cruel. Let strangers be filled with your wealth, and your labors be in the house of a stranger, and you mourn at the last when your flesh and your body is consumed, and so on. So again in Proverbs 6, verse 33, Whoso commits adultery destroys his own soul. In Proverbs 5, verse 5, Her feet go down to death, her steps take hold on hell. As who should say, There is no escaping death but by the shunning her, and if not death, temporal. It's surely death, eternal. Nay, if this will not fright you, there is no escaping between hell and her. Besides, it's in that which is good. The more a man delights, the more comfort it will bring him, according to that in Proverbs 3, verse 4. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. So shall you find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and man. 
So on the contrary, those sins in which a man most delights bring greatest punishment to him, as you may see in the punishment of Babylon in Revelation 18 verse 7 where it is said, how much she has glorified herself and lived deliciously, so much torment and sorrow give her. Thus, and you see in the grievousness of the punishment, it proves sin itself to be more heinous and fearful. Thirdly, the heinousness of the sin will appear if we consider the danger of it and difficulty to get out when we are fallen into it. The wise man says in Proverbs 23 verse 27, A whore is a deep ditch, and a strange woman is a narrow pit. Now, as it is almost impossible for a man in a deep ditch or a narrow pit to get out with some help from another, so is it altogether impossible for one that has fallen into this sin of fornication to free himself from it without the special assistance of God's grace helping him to it. And therefore it is said in Proverbs 2 verse 19, None, they go unto her return again. Neither take they hold of the paths of life. Therefore also is Ecclesiastes 7 verse 26. Her heart said to be snares and nets. In respect of the entanglements in which she entraps her followers. And her hands to be as bands. In respect to the difficulty to get loosed from. The sin besotted Solomon. The wisest among men. Nevertheless, even him did outlandish woman cause to sin, Nehemiah 13, verse 26. So also did it by which Samson, the strongest among men, when it was consecrated and set apart as holy to God, even he was overcome by it, as we may read in Judges 16. We know by experience, as a man that is stumbling from the top of a hill, there is no staying for him till he come to the bottom. So he that has once ventured upon this deep, hit and begins to slide into it there is no stain of him till he be utterly lost in the bottom of it there is a man in a quicksand and the more he stirs the further he sticks in it and sinks the deeper so it is with him that is overtaken with this filthy sin the more he stirs in it the faster he sticks done the harder it will be for him to get out therefore we conclude this sin is a most fearful sin and hard to be overcome, or left off if once accustomed to the delight of it. Fourthly, the heinousness of the sin will be discovered if we consider the deceitfulness of it. It will so bewitch us that we will hardly be persuaded that it is a sin. Now if we will not believe it to be a sin, much less will we be brought to leave the sweetness of it, to forsake the pleasure we find in it. Besides the devil, that old serpent, he comes and tells us it is neither sin at all or else but a small sin, and may be easily left. We may turn from it when we please, and so he dandles us till we grow into such an height as we become insensible and hardened in it. Here, therefore, I will lay down the deceits that Satan uses to beguile us in the sin, which being detected we may the easier shun and avoid this detestable and bewitching uncleanness. The first deceit in which Satan uses to beguile us is hope of repentance. We think we can repent when we will. That is, that is in our power. For God will upon any of our prayers be heard of us. Heaven's gate will be open at first knock. And therefore he commits a sin today and tomorrow. Says his prayers and all shall be well. But beware of this lest he be deceived. God will not be mocked. If he will send a day, perhaps you shall not live to repent until tomorrow, or suppose that you do live, 
Yet he that is unfit today will be more unfit tomorrow. God cannot endure a man that will fall into the same sin again and again. For he styles it in Deuteronomy 29 verse 19, adding drunkenness to thirst. That is, never leave drinking till we be at thirst again. That which should extinguish and abate our thirst has made the means to increase and inflame it. Now what punishment follows such is do so. You read in the next verse, and it is a fearful punishment. The Lord will not spare him. And in the anger of the Lord and his jealousy shall smoke against that man. And all the curses that are written in this book shall lie upon him, and the Lord shall blot out his name from under heaven. Who is there among you that would not be terrified at this sentence? Surely his heart is of adamant. Nothing can pierce it. If this doesn't, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Beware then of doing this. Go not in sin upon hope to repent at your pleasure, lest before you think it time for your pleasure to do it in, the hand of the Lord be stretched out upon you, and his jealousy smoke against you, or one, if not all, his curses alight upon you. A man would take it ill if his neighbor should wrong him today, and as soon as he had done asking pardon, and yet wronged him again the next day in the same kind, and then asked pardon again, and so for the third and the fourth and forward. Even so it is with God, we fall into the sin today, and perhaps at night, beg pardon of him, and yet tomorrow commit the same sin over again, as if we had asked leave to sin the freer. Take heed of this. Do not bless yourself in your heart, saying, I shall appease, or I shall repent when I want to, for fear lest God presently blot out your name from under heaven. Again, hope of after repentance leads many men on to the commission of this sin. They hope they may repent before death. It is a great while till it has come, therefore time enough to do this sin. But this God has threatened. You heard even now in the place above mentioned, I pray, consider of it. Balaam, his desire was but to die the death of the righteous, therefore he perished among God's enemies. He desired it, and while he remained only desiring, without any labor to live the life of the righteous, God justly punished him with another overthrow as he did with those. And Isaiah 28 verse 15 who said, We made a covenant with death, and with hell are we at agreement when the overflowing scourge shall pass through. It shall not come unto us. These men thought all was sure, nothing could come to hurt them. Dare as well as any man, for they had agreement with hell and death. Neither should the scourge meddle with them, but these were but their own thoughts. They reckoned without their host, as we used to say, for see what God says to them in verse 18, your covenant with death shall be disannulled, and your agreement with hell shall not stand when the overflowing scourge shall pass through, and then you shall be trodden down by it. They might contrive, God will dispose, though they did think all well and hope for peace and quietness, yet he would disannul their covenant and break off their agreement, so that the overflowing scourge, that is, sudden destruction, should take a hold of them and utterly confound them. Ammon, going to his brother Absalom's feast, little thought to have been so soon cut off. Sycam preparing himself for a wife, 
never thought of a funeral, nor is it likely that Cora and his company thought that their tent doors should be their graves, I warned you. They hope for repentance, yet the sudden destruction took away all possibility of repenting from them. God threatened such in Ezekiel 24 verse 13, because I have purged you, and you were not purged. You shall not be purged from the filthiness any more till I have caused my fury to rest upon you. And indeed we cannot repent unless God sends a spirit into our hearts. And he will not send a spirit into such a heart as is filthiness in it. Will any man put liquor into a glass where toads and spiders are? Much less will God's spirit come into a heart that is unclean. Besides, such a man is not purged from his uncleanness of himself is most indisposed to repentance because he is without feeling as in Ephesians 4 verse 19 who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Now such a man as has no sense of his misery they cannot feel his wretched condition but is insensible of his corruption he can never repent for as the apostle says in Second Peter 2 verse 14 he cannot cease from sin, and where there is no leaving off and forsaking to sin, there can never be any true repentance. Lastly, God refuses such a man. He will not endure to hear him if he should beg repentance at his hands, and the reason is because he cannot beg it in sincerity. For true repentance argues a turning from and a loathing of all sin, and therefore such a purpose as men use to have in a time of extremity, while the cross is on them, that they will forsake sin, that they will not do such and such a thing. This, I say, will not serve the turn. It is not sufficient, though they should mourn and seem to repent, yet will God not accept of it. For the very beast may do as much, as it is said, therefore the law and mourn, and every one that dwells in it shall languish, with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven. Hosea 4 verse 3. The second deceit in which Satan uses to deceive men is present impunity. He labors to persuade us because we are not presently punished, therefore God does not see it, or will not punish it at all, and therefore will go on in our sin, and delight to wallow still in our pollutions. According to that of the preacher in Ecclesiastes 8 verse 11, because sentence against an evil work, is not executed speedily. Therefore the hearts of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil against this deceit of Satan, to prevent it, lest we should be overtaken by it. Let us remember these following considerations. First, that though execution be not presently done, yet punishments are everywhere threatened, and God's threatening is as good as a payment. His word is sure and one tittle of it shall not fall to the ground unfulfilled. And when God begins to punish, he will make an end, as it is said in 1 Samuel 3 verse 12, In that day I will perform against Eli all things that I have spoken against his house. When I began, I will also make an end. If he strike once, he need not to strike any more. His blows are sure. When he strikes, he never misses. His arrows kill at the first shooting. Consider second, that either a sudden judgment shall overtake them, and so confound them in an instant. Or if it be delayed, then the fear it should light upon them quite takes away the sweetness of the sin they commit. 
and so make the sin itself a vexation and a punishment to them, or else lastly if God allows them to run on and sin securely, and without all fear or remorse, he bears with them, but that he may make his power known, and imminent, by bringing a great judgment on them at the last, as the apostle says in Romans 9 verse 22. Consider thirdly, that such as go on in their sin, which hope to escape, because they are not presently punished, they abuse the patience and long-suffering of God. Now the manifestation of God's attributes is his name, and whoso abuses them, takes his name in vain. The third deceit in which Satan beguiles men is to present sweetness in the sin. The delight we take in the acting of the sin, there is a kind of bewitching pleasure in it that steals away our hearts from holiness and purity to defile them with filthiness and uncleanness. For if we never give so little way to the pleasure and sweetness of it, it will bring us presently to the acting of it. But for the answer to this, and to prevent being besotted with this delight and sweetness and sin, take notice of the ensuing considerations first. He that denies himself in this sweetness and delight shall not lose by it. He shall be nothing prejudiced by it, but shall find a greater sweetness and a far more excellent kindness, a sweetness in the remission of his sin and reconciliation to Jesus Christ a sweetness in the being freed and cased in the burden of his sins and corruptions. But some men here will be ready to say, it is not such an easy thing to restrain one's lust. It is a matter of great difficulty and consequence, and of more pains and trouble than you speak of. Why did then you bid us to deny ourselves in the sweetness of sin? To this I answer, indeed it is true. It is hard at first to overcome and be brought into subjection, yet in an heart that is truly humbled. It may be mortified, and if once it come to that, then it will be easy to moderate it and bring it under command. But secondly, consider what Christ says in Matthew 8, verse 18. It is better for you to enter into life halt and maim, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And indeed, how much better were it for us, if we would cut off this right hand or right eye of delight and pleasure and sin and cast it from us, that so we might go to heaven, than having pleasure here in this life for a season to be cast into everlasting fire, to have our part and portion with the devil and his angels, which shall be sure to have, if we forsake not this filthy sin of lust and uncleanness. For the apostle says it often, and that peremptorily, without exception, in many of his epistles, that no adulterer, whoremonger, fornicator, or unclean person shall enter into the kingdom of God. Thirdly, consider the more sweetness and delight we take in this sin, the greater anguish and torment we shall find in the renewing of our hearts, and the more difficulty will it be for us to leave it. Besides, it is a dangerous thing to make our sweetness fully, for then perhaps we may be so besotted with it as we shall hardly relish anything else, especially the contrary virtue, which shall seem very bitter and distasteful to us. And therefore let us be persuaded not to adhere too much to the sweetness and delight that we find present in the acting of this sin, lest we become so bewitched with it as we never will be able to forsake it. The fourth deceit which Satan uses to beguile men with it is the falseness of the common opinion of most men, and cunning delusion of our carnal reason to which it seems either no sin at all or else so little as it need not any great ado to be made about it. Most men think of this sin, fornication, but a trick of the youth, whose blood heated 
with intemperance, but now must have something to allay its lust on. Now these two be incompetent judges, both common opinion and carnal reason, and are altogether unfit to judge of the notoriousness of this sin. But let us bring it to the balance of the sanctuary, and then we shall see the judge way of it. We shall see it in its proper filthiness and native ugliness. No man that is guilty of it can discern its depravity, for the conscience is defiled by it. Now the conscience is, as it were, the very glass of the soul. And if the mirror be defiled, how can we see the spots in the soul? And if these be not to be discovered, then nothing is left in which to judge aright of it. And therefore we must needs be deceived in the perceiving the filthiness and heinousness of it. Let us therefore betake ourselves to the scripture, which will show it truly in its proper colors. And if we use the means, God will assuredly send his spirit to enlighten us. When Judas had but a glimpse of this light open to him, how great think ye seem sin that then to him, which before he dared commit boldly for thirty pieces of silver. Yet now it drives him to desperation, and he hangs himself. We must pray, therefore, the spirit to enlighten us, that so we may see the filthiness of the sin, and be no more deceived by it as if it were either but a small sin or hardly any at all, as many men think, and our carnal reason would persuade us too. The fifth and the last deceit in which our cunning adversary the devil labors to beguile us with is hope of secrecy. Men commit this in private. There are no spectators, no secretaries shall be entrusted with it. The innermost closets and most retired rooms are the places destined for this work and the time commonly is the most obscure and blackest season, the night, and indeed not unfitly, for it is a deed of darkness. Yet, let all such as be guilty of this, let them lay to heart these following considerations first, though they be never so private and secret in it. Yet God sees it, they cannot shut out his eyes. Though they made the light of the sun, he knows it, and then he shall be revealed, that which is said of alms. Matthew 6, 4, may very be truly said of this, your father which sees in secret himself shall reward you openly. So God sees a secret, adultery or fornication. He will reward it. He will punish it openly. See it, for example, in David's adultery with Bathsheba. There the Lord says, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with the wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it in secret. But I will do the thing before all Israel and before the sun. See the justice of God in punishing because David did it secretly and used all manner of means to conceal it. It's making Uriah drunk and then sending him to his wife to lie with her that so it might be hidden, yet God withheld him from her, and so brought it about that David had no way to cover his sin. Therefore also, because David labored to keep it close and secret from all men, he will make his punishment public and manifest to all Israel. Again God says, because you despise me. So observe in this secret committing of sin, a man despises God in a more special manner, for he fears more to the sight of men than the sight of God and that he labors to conceal and hide it from the eyes of men, but does not care, though God looks on, and as he would either say nothing, or regarded not at all his sin. God has said, Them that honor me I will honor, 
and those that despise me shall be lightly esteemed, that is, they shall be despised. Consider, secondly, the divers and manifold ways God has to reveal it. Though men be never so close and secret and use all possible means to hide their sin, it's fair outward civility, a seeming to hate such a filthy, notorious wickedness or anything else, an hypocritical heart can invent. It God has a number of ways to detect their filthiness and lay open their hypocrisy. As first by sensible things when there is no person near to see it, yet the very birds and bees have fulfilled it. Secondly, he gives them up to a reprobate sense, and then in the end, though they have long lying in it unseen and unsuspected, at last they become shameless, and so lie open to every man's discovery. Thirdly, he can make any living man to reveal his own sin, as we see in Judas. To all the time he was working his wickedness, he'd carried the business close enough. Yet in the conclusion, when he had brought the business to pass, and in all probability it being now finished, should never be concealed, and then he will confess it. He must tell it to everybody in like manner. It will be our case, though we keep our filthiness never so private, yet God can make us in the end on our deathbeds. Confess it, though all our life before we have hidden it.